Our scripture text this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Listen for a word from God. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap Jesus in what he said. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, showing deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, Give, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left Jesus and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, thank you for your word. I pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the message you have for us today. In the name of Christ, amen. So I'd like to start with a very short pop quiz. I have two fill-in-the-blank questions for you, and I think you'll do a really good job with this pop quiz. Okay, first one is, imagine that you are going out to eat um, for the first time with some new people, maybe particularly people that you, you know, want to impress or have a good first impression, you know, maybe a new boss or potential future in-laws or something like that. What are the two topics you are not supposed to talk about at dinner? Just shout it out. Politics and religion, great job, 10 points. Okay, next question. Um, Finish this quote made famous um, by Benjamin Franklin, though he wasn't the first to say it. In this life, the only certainty is death and taxes. Great job, you guys are so on top of it. Death, taxes, politics, religion. Our short little gospel text for today contains all of those things. All of these sort of taboo type subjects that Jesus addresses. Once again, we see the beginning of this passage is a group of people trying to trick Jesus into saying something that's going to get him in trouble. They're trying to bait him into this dangerous territory of conversation that has to do with taxes and politics and religion and how they mix together and what we should do about it. And the group of people that come to confront Jesus with this question are the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, this is a very interesting pairing of people. These are two groups that typically do not have anything to do with each other. They have very different priorities and worldviews, but they have come together with the purpose of trapping Jesus in this question. The Herodians, as you might imagine, were um, people that were following and were fans of the line of Herod, the king, the great. And the Herodians kept their 
they kept the peace for the Roman Empire and they built their own lives off of supporting the empire's policies and programs. The Pharisees we talk about more often in the New Testament readings, and for the most part, the Pharisees had this, you know, kind of live and let live relationship with the Roman Empire, and they were more concerned with keeping the law and holding tight to their religious beliefs. But for different reasons, Jesus and his teaching and his just being in the world upset the status quo for these two groups. He made the future of their lives a little unpredictable, and so they felt threatened by him. And so the two groups come together to ask this loaded question about whether it's right to pay taxes to Caesar. Because they recognize by asking him this question together, they've sort of trapped Jesus. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, then the Herodians have a right to arrest him. If Jesus says, does not say that everything belongs to God, then the Pharisees have a right to discredit his whole religiosity. They think, aha, he cannot win, and so we will go in together. As a friend of mine says, this is a bipartisan attack on Jesus. (laughs) These groups reached across the aisle so that they could trap him. And I think there's something significant in noticing that these political leaders and these religious leaders go in together because it tells us that the reach of Jesus extended into both realms. So the trap is set. Is it right to pay taxes to the empire? Jesus, what are your politics? Whose side are you on? What is most important? And of course, Jesus responds by asking them to show him a coin and asks them, whose face do you see? Having a face on currency, as you just saw, is clearly something we still do all these thousands of years later. And though not many of us us carry a lot of cash anymore, we, we know these faces and we sort of understand what they represent largely on our money here in the United States, it's dead, white, male, former presidents. In 2016, the U.S. Department of Treasury announced that they were going to um, have a new face on the $20 bill, Harriet Tubman. And we all know, of course, Harriet Tubman and her work as abolitionist and activist, as conductor of the Underground Railroad and helping so many people escape the the terrors of slavery. And so there was great celebration when this announcement was made in 2016. This is a chance for the United States to acknowledge all of the harm that they have done and to put a woman and a black woman on our money as a sign of how much we have progressed. In the never-ending tug of war and politics as it is in the United States, you'll notice we don't yet see Harriet Tubman on any $20 bills. Um, Former President Trump did his best to sort of delay the process, and then current President Biden tried to expedite it, but even still they're saying Harriet Tubman $20 bills might only be a a reality in 2030. Who is on your money And what does it say about your society? Who is hanging on your walls? And what does that say about your church? 
who is on a statue in your parks and what does that say about your city? Jesus ends his demonstration with a solution. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. It's a brilliant response that equally disappoints both groups. Jesus is not saying that Caesar and God are equals. Jesus is not saying don't pay taxes. And so both groups, the text says, are kind of amazed and they walk away and I imagine are also quite annoyed. They don't have enough grounds to arrest Jesus in the moment or to persecute him in the way that they eventually will. Today, a lot of people come to this story looking for some kind of answer, some kind of clarification on how politics and religion should pair up against each other. They want a blueprint of what we should do when we're faced with these questions of politics and religion. And often the conclusion after reading this text is, okay, so we're, we're supposed to obey God, but also respect civil authority and put things in their place. But if we look at who Jesus is and what he is actually doing here, I think there is so much more in the subtext. Jesus shows over and over and over again in his ministry that religion and politics can't help but be intermeshed. They're entangled. And the very fact that political and religious leaders have to come together to push this against him is proof of that. Jesus recognizes in his response the presence of empire and acknowledges that sometimes there are unavoidable things that come out of that. But at the same time, he acknowledges how shallow empire really is. He has a perspective of the only empire that will remain in the end, the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't give in to the Roman Empire by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar. He spends his whole ministry pushing against the evils of empire, resisting it over and over again, and pointing past it to a kingdom that belongs to God. Jesus knows that all empires will eventually fall, except for that of God. So he says, don't give to the empire more than you must and at the same time, remember what belongs to God. The good news is that you belong to God. And as the psalmist says, the earth and all that is in it belongs to God. If we give to God all that belongs to God, we can't help but upend empire along the way. The question that Jesus asks about the coin goes so much further than just money. And it's a question that I think we are called to ask over and over and over and over again. Whose face do you see here? What is the imprint? Who do you see? When we come to decisions of how to spend our time or our energy, what to do with our vocation or our family or our church, I think we need to constantly be asking, whose face do I see in this? 
Is it the image of empire, or is it the image of God? Scripture tells us we bear the image of God, exactly as we are, not when we achieve a certain thing, or when we fix a certain sin, or when we look a certain way, but as we are, we bear the image of God's goodness, and God's grace, and God's hope. You do, and so do the people next to you, and even the ones that you don't like. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in empire that we miss the image of God in our fellow humans and in ourselves. And sometimes the things that we think are bearing the image of God actually have an imprint of empire deeply, deeply embedded. I'll clarify that when I say empire, I'm not just talking about a past Roman empire of this biblical story. I'm talking about the cultural forces that still exist here today, particularly in our time and place. I'm talking about the cultural forces that are profit-based and that have roots entrenched in patriarchy and white supremacy. I'm talking about systems that refuse to spend money to equitably and helpfully educate all children, but seem to have endless money to send to oppressive, occupying forces for warfare. The empire needs to be resisted. And the first step is recognizing when we see its face. And then looking around to see, well, where then is the face of God? The hardest part is thinking sometimes that there's an imprint of God when actually that empire imprint goes deeper. I had a professor in seminary that described this problem as the realization came to him. He uh, was an expert in the topic of Sabbath, of holy rest, as gifted to us by God and as practiced by God. And he spent his whole academic career studying Sabbath and writing books about Sabbath and teaching about Sabbath and traveling to speak about Sabbath. And he said at one point he realized that he was so part of grind culture and hustle culture and doing and doing and achieving and getting that he wasn't at all practicing Sabbath. He was trying to get the next promotion and get the next book out before the next deadline, and he hadn't taken a day off in years. He said, where is the imprint of God in this? I've been taken up by this whole idea of achieving and earning a profit that our culture pushes, even when the thing I'm trying to teach is holy rest. What is the imprint and what face do you see? Even the decision to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill has an imprint of empire on it when we look critically. There's an activist and writer named Sade Green who researched this whole decision about putting Tubman on the $20 bill, and she says, you know, Harriet Tubman was an abolitionist who understood that slavery birthed capitalism. And she would have been offended to know that her face would be on the tool of capitalism. Green said, instead of putting Tubman on the $20 bill, the U.S. government should work on defunding institutions that originated in slavery. 
and institutions that continue to oppress black people. The government shouldn't spend all that time trying to speed up or slow down the process and debate how it gets done and how the treasury and how the mint changes. Instead, to work on making access to clean water and education and mental health a priority for all people. I learned, by the way, in my research about this Harriet Tubman $20 bill that the plan was still, or is still, as far as I know, to have Andrew Jackson on the back. Andrew Jackson, who we know to be a former slaveholder and persecutor of indigenous peoples in this land. And some said, well, he might just be a statue on the lawn of the White House on the back of the bill, but that is still an imprint of empire, isn't it? Empire shows up not just on our money, but in our systems, sometimes in our churches, and in our own motivations. Whose face is really on this? What image does it bear? The good news of Jesus is his telling us over and over again that empire does not own you. Your soul can never be taken by empire. You belong to God. Your fellow human beings belong to God, regardless of who they worship or who they vote for. You are created in the image of God. If you bear that image and your very being is imprinted with the goodness of God, as you seek to give to God everything that belongs to God, you can't help but upend empire. Think this week about where it is that you most recognize that you bear the image of God. Who are the people that remind you of that? What activities do you do where you feel that you are embodying that goodness of God? Where do you see that image and lean into that, recognizing that empire might be just around the corner? But we, in our souls, belong only to God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, you have made us good. We know that no matter what we struggle with, no matter what we do, we still bear your image. God, all around us, in the sake, for the sake of progress or power or privilege, we see images of empire. Help us to notice them when we do, to call them out, and to lean into your image. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.